0: The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm very excited to be beginning this new series with you. That's re- the reason for that is because after the question of who we will worship with our life, and I believe a following question of if and who we might be married to, One of the most important questions following those is simple. What will I do for a living? We're left to figure out what are we good at? What are we passionate about? And then what could enable us to earn a living? What would someone pay us to do? And what would be the quality of that living? And every every age of life asks this question. Children, when they're very young, they begin kind of trying out, putting on costumes of future occupations because they're envisioning what they might do. High school students, when they're thinking about life after high school, they wonder, will I begin just get a job, or will I just apply to college, or will I seek vocational training or an apprenticeship of some kind? Then adults, whether young adults or even middle-aged adults, sometimes will consider a career change, going back to school, sometimes in the middle of life, to change things altogether. People that are approaching retirement in the next 10 years begin to wonder, what am I going to do with my time? when my career is not demanding 40 plus hours a week from me. And then even senior adults in their golden years may say, do I have anything left to contribute that's meaningful to the world? This is an important question. It's not just important because it's an existential question that we all want that sense of clarity, but it's also very important because of the amount of time that you will spend in your vocation. In this article from January 9th, 2023, The average American works about 2,000 hours a year. That means about 90,000 hours across your career. That's one-third of your life on average. You spend the other one-third sleeping. That's a significant amount of time, or one of the other thirds sleeping. That's a significant amount of time to spend on your job. So it's a very, very important question. Well, a a couple of months ago, I read a book called the way we work, how faith makes a difference on the job by Dr. Dan Boone, one of my favorite authors. And that got me to thinking about our church and those who visit our church, that if that's how much time we spend in our careers, then we would be well served to ask the question, what does scripture have to say to us? What constructive critique or wisdom does the Bible give us for understanding the purpose of our work in light of God and in service to our neighbor? And I'm eager, beginning today in the following four weeks, to look at a variety of biblical teachings around this very important subject. But we're not beginning today just by looking at Scripture. I want us to begin by reading the text of our culture. Because movies, songs, shows, ads all tell us a message. How do we get by with less work? How can we seek to get rich quickly? How could we cut corners or make some easy money? Because work is a time and energy drag. See if these lyrics sound familiar to you. The sun is hot, that old clock is moving slow, and so am I. Workday passes like molasses in wintertime, but it's July. Getting paid by the hour, but older by the minute. My boss just pushed me over the limit. I'd like to call him something. I think I'll just call it a day. Anybody recognize those lyrics? two great American theologians wrote this poem, Alan Jackson and the late great Jimmy Buffett. It's five o'clock somewhere. I asked Steve this week, I said, you know, maybe we could incorporate that into the worship set. And Steve got a little too excited and said, well, maybe Edie could provide along with the coffee some margaritas. I said, Steve, it's nine and 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't, maybe we need to have a further conversation. I'm not sure. If you're in our family, you recognize the lyrics to this one for sure. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living. Barely getting by, it's all taken and no given. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you'll let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You would think that I would deserve a fair promotion. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. The great saint of the Smokies, Dolly Pardon, working nine to five. Message is real clear. Everybody hates their job. Nobody wants to work, and therefore the purpose is to do as little of that as you can to get the maximum amount of gain so that you can get back to a life of ease and rest and recreation and fulfillment. Well, you may be surprised to hear from me that the Bible actually brings that same exact message. There are two formative biblical stories about the nature of work, but they're radically different stories. They're stories for why we work, and they're stories for the way that we think about it, and they're both found in the book of Genesis, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 3. The story of Genesis chapter 2 is one of God's continued creation. The story of chapter 3 is the initiation of God's redemption, and both of them touch foundationally on the subject of human work. We began reading today from Genesis 2, but I'd actually like to move first to the one in Genesis 3, because that's actually what shapes our thinking about work more than any other. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You all know this story. God's perfect creation was in balance and harmony and human beings were living in joyful obedience to the instructions of their Creator who came down and fellowshiped with them every afternoon. And then this character enters the story. The serpent represents the Satan that whispers into my ear and yours to abandon our creaturely dependence on God for our purpose and how we should live and rather to pursue the things that we are interested in. And here the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, decide that they want to pursue their own preferred future. They take the bait. They disobey. They break God's law. And when God comes down later that afternoon to walk with Him, God finds them scared and hiding, ashamed of their nakedness. And God begins to delve out consequences for what they've done. God begins with the serpent. God moves to the woman and then to the man. And when He speaks to the man, He says, Because you listened to your wife's voice and you ate from the tree that I commanded, don't eat from it. Cursed is the fertile land because of you. In pain, you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Until you return to the fertile land, since from it you were taken, you are soil, and to the soil you will return. About 120 years ago, there was an illustration of this scene or this curse in an illustrated Bible, a stenciled engraving by an artist and you can see there Eve in the left-hand part of that image who has her hands and lap full with raising Cain and Abel. And she's looking over at her husband whose face is downcast as he begins to turn the soil trying to provide food for his family. It doesn't look like a joyful moment for Eve or for Adam. So the question is, why is this a consequence from God so that work becomes an unpleasant curse that is a necessary evil that everybody has to just endure. And it's not just there in Genesis 3. There are other scriptures that talk about this. Part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the wise teachings of the Old Testament, is a book of Ecclesiastes. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about work. Here are these words in chapter 2. I called it quits. Gave up, on, gave up on anything that could be hoped for on this earth. What's the point of working your fingers to the bone if you hand over what you worked for to someone who never lifted a finger for it? Smoke, that's what it is. A bad business from start to finish. So what do you get from a life of hard labor? Pain and grief from dawn to dusk. Never a decent night's rest. Nothing but smoke. Whoa. Pretty cynical. Pretty negative. Why does he say it's nothing but smoke? Some of your Bibles, if you were to read it, would use the word vanity. But in the Hebrew, this word smoke actually is the word hevel. And it literally is translated as smoke or vapor or fog. Why is that? Because as you will see in this lit candle here, whenever you try to grasp smoke, it's impossible. nothing. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says that's the point of work. The only point you'll ever had is ha- ever receive from it is how pointless it actually is. You are grasping at fog. I have an uncle that read Ecclesiastes I'm absolutely convinced of. This is my uncle Lester. I, pres- I presided at his funeral just a few years ago. He's my dad's brother. My uncle Lester was a small, wiry man with a high-pitched voice. And he had lots of opinions to share that he considered to be very wise. And it didn't matter if you didn't ask to hear them. That was his calling in the world, was to provide his advice to you about what you should do. And I was about 16 years old and was at a family gathering and I was chatting with Uncle Lester and he said, well, son, are you still playing ball at school? I said, yes, sir, I've played basketball for a couple of years, but... I'm not sure I'm going to play this year cuz I really want to get a part-time job, you know, I can drive, I got to put gas in the car and so. He said, "Sonny, let me stop you right there. You listen to your uncle Lester. 30 years from now you're going to wake up and you're going to have a mortgage to pay and you're trying to keep your wife happy and you're going to have kids to feed and the boss will be breathing down your neck and you will wake up and say, "What in the world have I gotten myself into?" What happened to my youth? Young man, these are the best years of your life. You better go play basketball because you're going to work for the rest of your life and have very little to show for it. And then he laughed in my face. (laughs) Sounds like Ecclesiastes to me. That's the message Uncle Lester was bringing is that work is simply pointless. What I want to suggest to you is that is the message that begins in Genesis 3. But there's a better story And it begins in the prior chapter, the way that God intended life and work to be. In the second chapter of Genesis, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord made earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on earth, and before any field crops grew, because the Lord hadn't yet sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, Though a stream rose from the earth and watered all the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit, and also he grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and take care of it. This human being, which is yet unnamed at this point in the Genesis story, becomes Adam and later Eve together. Now it's just the human in the Hebrew. God takes the human, forms him from the clay like a little claymation figure, and then breathes life into this human. The word for breath and spirit... Are the same word in the Hebrew, God's Spirit animates this person made from the fertile soil. I love the language of Hebrew when it talks about the man became a living being. Some of your Bibles may use another phrase, the person came alive or the human came to life. That word in the Hebrew is a word called nefesh. And the word nefesh literally means throat. It means throat. And in the Bible, this describes the total living of a person, a living Embodied soul is a nefesh. And the imagery here is that God breathes God's spirit and the vulnerable part, life-giving part of a person where all of the blood flow flows, where all of the air passes through, that which can make us vulnerable to physical danger when our neck is in the noose, as we say. God makes the nefesh and He comes to life. In this 1600s rendering of the creation of Adam, which looks a little bit like Michelangelo's creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel, God there with a garden behind God and a mound of fertile topsoil in the back part of the image is reaching out to bring the first human to life. And God will breathe into his lungs the breath of life. And this clay becomes an ephesh, having received a gift of life from God. And God takes him, and turns and places him in the garden and gives the world's first occupation to help the plants grow for food. What's the difference between the gardening that Adam is cursed with in Genesis 3 versus the gardening he's created to do in Genesis chapter 2? It's both gardening, both bringing forth the harvest of the earth so that human beings can share and thrive with food. The difference is that in Genesis 2, Work is not the result of sin in the world. Aimless, unfulfilling toil is the result of sin in the world, which comes in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 2, the human saw his work as a gift from God, a divine purpose. God would meet his needs because his life came from God. He's a living being because of God's creative work in his life. He would have all he ever needed there in the garden. God would provide and meet every need, but... In Genesis 3, your eyes will be open, the serpent says, and you will become like God. You'll be able to secure your own future. You'll be able to choose what your goals are, what your dreams are, how to spend your leisure, your pace, your choice. The sin of the first humans is to be freed from their creaturely dependence on God they receive as a gift and to reject that nefesh from God to become their own God. And so the consequence of God to Adam is simply, you want to be a God to secure your own future? Go and do it. And now Adam, as representative of humanity, is destined to rely upon his own willpower, inertia, all of that, to secure his own future. So how in the world do we today get back to Genesis 2? We live on the side of Genesis 3 and we live in a world and some of, us, some of you, when I was describing people who hate their jobs, you weren't laughing. Because you really wonder what purpose you have in the work that you're doing. How in the world do we get away from Genesis 3 and back to Genesis 2? What I want to suggest to you today, just the first sermon in this series, is quite simple. We do not follow the first Adam. We follow the second Adam. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, Just as through one human being sin sin came into the world and death came through sin, so death has come to everyone since everyone has sinned. But the free gift of Christ isn't like Adam's failure. If many people died through what one person did wrong, God's grace is multiplied even more for many people with the gift of the one person Jesus Christ that comes through grace. Please don't miss the fundamental difference that that can make in the way that you enter your life and work. It is a profound perspective shift that begins with graciousness and gratitude having been received, is expressed back to God and in service to our neighbor. So, tomorrow, many of you are going to get up, get dressed, have your coffee, and you're going to go to work. Whether that's a classroom or a cubicle or you're working from home or on the road, wherever that is, the phone is going to have to be answered. The text message will have to be acknowledged. Emails will have to be replied to. Meetings are going to have to be attended. Travel is going to have to be arranged. Report must be given. Presentations must be shared with others. Buckets must be filled. Buckets must be emptied. The research must be conducted. The homework must be finished. But for followers of Jesus Christ, for followers of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, we can choose to either achieve our lives on our own terms or receive receive our lives on His terms as a gift of God's grace. And that fundamentally... It's the same task, but it fundamentally shifts the way that we see its purpose and meaning for us. Because it's in service for the glory of God having received the grace of God and in service to our fellow men and women. I've seen this, and I'd like to tell you a parable about it. A young couple is visiting a city they've never visited before. It's a new and bustling city that is beginning to grow and form. And while they're visiting as tourists, walking down the sidewalk, they see a place where construction is just beginning to take place. The building hasn't been built yet. Instead, there's just a small ditch of a foundation being, being, being dug out, and there are two men working, shovels in their hands. And the young couple, looking like tourists and with cameras around their necks and their phones out ready to take pictures, they walk up and say, excuse me, if you don't mind asking, if us asking, what is it that you're doing? And one of them looks up through slanted eyes and gritted teeth and begins to lean on the shovel. And says, what does it look like we're doing? We're digging a ditch. And if you're wondering about it, my hands have blisters, my back is hurting, and guess what? It's only Tuesday. There are three more work days after this. This is hard work and it's hot out here. You know, look at my manager sitting over there in the shade with a cold beverage. I should have had a shot to do a job like that. And I wouldn't have to do this mess because I've got to tell you, I don't get paid enough to do this. Look at how much we have left to do, how deep we're going to have to build to dig through this rocky dirt. And after we're done with this hole, we get to get started on rusty rebar and pouring messy concrete. I cannot believe I'm spending the best years of my health and life working for someone else doing something like this. Couple's a little taken aback at that abrupt response. They're quiet. But then the second person stops for a second and leans on the hilt of the shovel and says... Actually, what I'm doing is preparing the most important part, the foundation, of a grand building. I've heard about what this building is going to do, who's going to work here, its purpose. Hundreds of people are going to come to work in this building. It's going to provide employment for people to be able to feed their families. Goods and services will be available to the community and beyond. Relationships are going to be formed, friendships. I think it's gonna make our community stronger. The tax revenue is gonna help our schools and charitable contributions for organizations around. People are gonna be able to afford better housing and the schools will be stronger. People's future will be brighter because of this. I get to be a part of digging the foundation for all of that future goodness in the world. And he sighed and looked to the horizon and said, you know, sometimes I'm overwhelmed at how good God has been to me. Same work. What's the difference? Jesus made up stories sometimes to teach. I actually didn't make that story up because the second perspective in that story, I saw this summer, the young people like this. Church of the New Seed, Quito, Ecuador, 19 students under the age of 19. And I gotta tell you something, the smiles in those images were not um, staged. The Carden kids, all three of them, had never done work that hard, <laughs> never done physical labor that hard in their life. Wheelbarrows full of dirt I mean, cantaloupe and cantaloupe and volleyball-sized rocks that they're having to move out and. Heavy concrete with, I mean, rickety old wheelbarrows and shovels, and they worked hard. And I did not hear a single word of complaint by any one of those 19 students for an entire week's worth of that kind of labor. Why? Maybe they lived a little bit more like this. And they felt like they were doing something that God was busy multiplying and creating goodness out of in the world because that church is going to serve that community through worship, first of all, but as a community health center, as a feeding program for poor children in that community for decades to come. They could see the difference because the grace of God was filling their heart. They knew why we were there to share the love of God in the world. So tomorrow morning, when your inbox is filled, you begin typing the replies, or you begin cleaning the patient's teeth, or you put your stethoscope on to listen to their heart, or to fulfill their prescription, or to stand up in front of the room to teach the math, or to make sure that their taxes are paid accordingly, or to drive them in a car, in your Uber car, whatever it is that you're going to do, begin with gratitude that we are an efeche, life that has been given as a gift, and the second gardener, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has given us the gift of forgiveness and grace, and how could our purpose in life and all those areas of commerce and business not be purposeful when gratefully placed in the hands of God? God, I pray today that you would help us to have different eyes to see the world that we live in, it may be different eyes to see the person in the mirror. To believe that no matter our vocation in this world, no matter the nature of the work that we do, you can use it. Because we have been created in your image. You have breathed your spirit into us. And by the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, you enable us to live on mission, on purpose in the world. Help us, Lord, to be lights shining in the darkness wherever we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.